Good morning, everybody. I'm Eureka John, and you're at Eureka Street Crypto Podcast, and it is <clears throat> August 13th, 2022, at 5.42 in the morning. I rolled out of bed and came straight down here, if you can't tell by my hair. Um, <clears throat> yep, this is my morning video blog, aka Brain Dump, uh, where I just talk about news and ideas and concepts and read articles. Um little bit of everything. So you never know what I'm going to talk about whenever I do an episode. This is my sandbox to play with audiovisual stuff and to do little tweaks and learn how to run different types of software and plugins and all that crap. And uh, this is my message in a bottle to other people in Web3 and people curious about the Web3 and crypto space. I don't even like to say crypto anymore because it's not really about crypto. It's not about price for me. It's not about all that type of speculation. It's about the emergence of this new technology and the ways in which it's being used, good and bad. You know, I mean, we just recently saw with Tornado Cash, the feds come in and uh, uh, well, now they've arrested the founder of Tornado Cash. <clears throat> it's kind of a Ross Ulbricht situation saying that, you know, torna uh, a tool, a piece of software, an open source software for that matter, is being used um, in in a way that is conducive to criminal activity. Now, the founder of Tornado Cash is not using it as criminal activity. It's just some criminals have happened to use you know, uh, Tornado Cash as a way to mix their, uh, their, um, their, I guess, stolen funds in order to launder the money and and uh, you know, make it untraceable. So, <clears throat> and the feds don't like anything like that. Uh, anonym, anonymity, privacy, things like that. They like it, but they don't like it in the in in the hands of of the general public. And people say it's just a tool. It's just a tool to maintain privacy, just like curtains in my office here. You know, like. I keep my curtains closed. I don't want, you know, especially at night. You know, I, I don't. I don't want some random, you know, schmo walking down the street to be able to look in my window and see everything I do. You know, you should have that same privacy allowed to you in the digital world. And uh, it's not because we're doing anything wrong. You know, it's just it's just basic human nature just wants some amount of privacy. I would think. Um, anyway, whatever. Let's go over here and let's take a look over at uh, hey, what's next. You know, there's Tornado Cash and we have uh, Zcash and Monero. They're private. The Fed's going to be coming after Zuku, the founder of Zcash. Um, maybe not because Zcash is, uh, I believe, FATC, FATF compliant. Um, uh, I don't know all the facts on that. I'm just kind of spouting you know, out of my mouth like I tend to do. So don't take anything I say seriously. Um, take it all for a grain of salt. But maybe you know it might get you to, to, to look for yourself onto something on something I say. Um, so yeah, everything I say is just kind of like I happen to have come across it on an article or Twitter or heard it on a podcast. So I'm talking about it here, you know, so... All right, so um, yeah, Bitcoin's at twenty four thousand five hundred. This has been a green couple days. I mean, everybody's stoked. The sentiment on Twitter, the sentiment in DAOs is uh, really high. You know, it's so crazy. You know, you, <laughs> just the amount of emotion that comes out in such a technical space. You would think that everybody is like, yeah, and and and. Well, the thing is, is crypto is this weird monster. It's it's like this this amalgamation, this this mashup, this aggregation of just like of tech people and finance people and artists and psychologists and academics and you know and and just your 
average run-of-the-mill taxi driver types and you know i work at a hose factory you know like seriously so it's just like this mashup of, of tons of people and it, whenever the market swings up and down you would think that a lot of people in such a technical industry you know programmers logic you know that that they would be um, very stoic about things. But no, man, emotions fly off the rails all over crypto Twitter whenever you see a bear market or a bull market. It's insane. And you, the people just don't seem to learn either. You know, this is like, oh my God, their minds are blown. You know, they buy at the top and it's just like, <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, who am I to point fingers at? Because I've done the exact same stuff, you know. When I first discovered altcoins and uh, all these different crypto projects and all these white papers that were out there, literally my my portfolio looked like a Boy Scout merit badge sash. I mean, it just had you know logos all over it of just random crappy projects, and I, most of those have gone to zero. Um, I've really managed to to narrow myself down to basically like Ethereum, Chainlink, Bitcoin. And uh, a few others, you know, like the bank token, I'm a heavily, um, but I earn the, those tokens you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm heavily involved in the bankless DAO. So I don't know. <clears throat> but um, anyway, so Bitcoin's at $24,506.59. Ethereum's at $1,999.1999.49. Uh, so it's up 15.9% in the past seven days. There's a lot of hype about the Ethereum merge. Um, they ha they did the Gurley merge, and Gurley is a test network. Um, so they have the main network for Ethereum. And that's where all the transactions happen and the, and the dApps are built. Then they have uh, what's called like test networks. That's where you can test out your your application, your website, your wallet, whatever you want to build, your, your token project um, on a test net first before you bring it live. So that way no real money is lost. And you can get, you know, test Ethereum on the test networks like Gurley, uh, Ropston, uh, there, there's Rinkaby, there's, there's several test networks. Um, and that's how you test out your applications before you go bring it live. So anyway, they did the test merge on Gurley. It was successful. And um, yeah, so I think the next step is, is the real merge. So there's going to be a big run up to the merge. Um, there's a big thing that there's going to be an ETH proof of work token left. Some people think it's going to drop off. Some people think that uh, mining activity is going to shift to Ethereum Classic um, or something like Ravencoin even. Um, and uh I don't know, man. I mean, I mine Ethereum on this little you know uh, PC I have here uh, with a couple GPUs. It's not much, but it's a little something, something. And uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to keep mining Ethereum. I'll probably switch to Ravencoin or something, uh, or maybe even Ethereum Classic. Who knows? But the thing is, is I don't see any apps being built on those chains, you know, and like real. You know, use cases or dexes or, or anything like that maybe there is and i'm just like not aware of it so if you if you become aware of something like that comment on the video and show me where where the daps are on those in the DeFi apps and stuff like that on those chains um so i don't know anyway i wanted to read an article today um because i come across really good articles and this one kind of stood out to me um it's called the power of inference biometric psychography and large uh, language models. Is that psychography or psychography? <laughs> psychography, psychography. Anyway, whatever. And then the little subtitles, more expressive bits plus better algorithms equal more knowledge. And who benefits? That's, that's the question. All right. So yeah, we are in an era of big data. Um, I'm also in a DAO called the Republic DAO, re-public 
Io, and uh, and I'm in the Journo DAO, which is seeks to decentralize media. Redash Public seeks to help you uh, take ownership of your data that is accumulated on your phone, and through the Republic app, you're they're seeking to put that data into a marketplace so you can sell your data. So anyway, I'll get into that in a little bit. But I want to read this article, and I'm going to just read it, all right? I do this sometimes. I just straight up just read an article, and I'll probably interject and talk about stuff here and there in, in while I read it, um, you know, just to kind of um, reflect on topics and stuff like that. So if you get annoyed by that, I'm sorry. It's just the way I do it. Ah. All right, so let's see here. I will start. Uh, this this is by um, an author, a, a blog on Substack called Under the Rose. So it's undertherose.substack.com. And it's a really good, good. this person's a good blogger, a person named Saffron. Um, so Saffron Huang, I guess, is how you pronounce her name. All right, so <clears throat> anyway. Knowledge is almost never raw data. Knowledge is usually gained through reasoning about raw data to arrive at some new factor conclusion. This reasoning, a.k.a. inference, is vital to almost every meaningful piece of knowledge that can be gained. Knowing someone's browsing history at face value is not why it's interesting to gather that data. It's what you can infer about their personality from their browsing history that's interesting. So it's not the raw data itself, it's what you can pull out of it. And I've been doing a lot of classes on LinkedIn about le learning about data science and data analysis. Yeah, the raw data itself is, is not that, like you can learn Python, you can learn the language R, you can learn all the Excel data applications, SQL queries and all that type of stuff and learn the tools. But if you don't know what you're trying to, to get out of that data and the right questions to ask, you're not going to be a good data scientist. So that's basically, I think, what she's trying to say here. So anyway, I'll, I'll continue. Inference can be surprisingly powerful. Knowing an American's gender, zip code, and birthday is enough in 84 to 97% of the cases to infer an ide their identity. So all you need is somebody's gender, zip code, and birthday. And in most of the cases, you can infer who they are. Exactly. Birthday, of course, narrows down the population quite a bit. But the inferential effectiveness of combining this with gender and zip codes seems like a large and fairly unintuitive leap from data to knowledge. So maybe you'll think twice before giving your gender and birth date to random websites now, especially as they can likely get your zip code from your browser. And I always wonder that, you know, like there's this, you know, this random little apps that I've downloaded on my iPhone, maybe it's some silly game and they always want my birth date. I'm like, really, this is like, this is not like um, sexual content. It's not like, you know, I don't, I'm not worried about minors. Why do they need to know my birth date? You know, it's, I'm old, okay? That's all they need to know. So anyway, but yeah, so think twice a little bit because what they're trying to do is they're trying to triangulate who you are, where you live, and all that other stuff that they can sell. You know, so if there's is there something free, you're the product. You know, and there is a huge industry in the data um, that that all these apps collect, and they might be you know as innocent as a little game. All right. So anyway, um, and for those of you watching the video, I will zoom this up so you can read it along with me. Okay, so 
the knowledge that can be inferred increases when either one, your raw data gets more expressive, or two, your reasoning methods get more powerful. Okay, so as a society, we're getting better at collecting more expressive data. For example, the new data generated by immersive technologies like AR, this augmented reality, and VR, virtual reality, represents a huge leap forward in biometric information gathering. VR and AR generate incredible amounts of fine-grained biometric information. Necessarily so, creating a realistic immersive world for a user entails things like eye tracking to reduce simulator sickness and movement tracking with things like optical sensors and gyroscopes to understand what people are trying to do in the simulated world. One thing this information one can use this information to directly improve the experience, of course, but one can also store this information to later feed it through statistical models. So a lot of these programs on your iPhone and whenever you're going and shopping and looking at uh, things like Instagram or uh, TikTok for, for that matter, they will track your eye movements. Like that camera will look at you and look in your eyes and track what you're looking at on the screen. And so say, you know, you, you happen to be watching a video and um, you're looking at uh, somebody's pants, you know, and the pants might stick out. And so next thing you know, you might be seeing ads for pants. I don't know. <laughs> That's how granular this stuff is getting. They're looking at your biometric data. <clears throat> All right. So anyway, I'll continue. <clears throat> And so they're going to, they're going to take, yes, they're going to do it in, in augmented reality to reduce, like in the virtual Oculus glasses, to reduce that simulator sickness, like motion sickness, like being on a plane, you know, the barf bag, you know, barf bag. I remember when I was a kid and I, the first time I was on a plane, I saw that barf bag and I was like, wow, the movie Airplane is real. Like, <laughs> there's, there's that, that scene in the air, the movie Airplane, the original Airplane, you know, the barf bag. And so, anyway, whatever. Uh, so, anyway, um, scholar Britton Heller points points out in her paper, watching Android's dream of electric sheep, I'll have to read that, that you can use eye tracking to infer what a person, to, to infer what interests a person, what their gaze lingers on. Pupil dilation can tell you who they're sexually attracted to and even predict autism and dementia. That is crazy, you know? So, so yeah, the eye tracking is built into your phone and it can infer what interests people, what your gaze lingers on. Like I said about those pants, you know, and then you suddenly get pants ads, you know? So, but that data is attached to you, to your phone, to your phone number, and to say, well, this person loves pants, you know? Like, <laughs> anyway, but I didn't know that pupil dilation can tell who you're sexually attracted to and even predict autism and dementia. Wow, I'll have to look into that. That's, that's a really interesting little tidbit. Anyway, to continue. This gives rise to biometric data that can help you infer someone's personality and interests on the physical and biological level. And then in parentheses, this gets even more powerful if you're combining it with first-person video recordings of their house through the front-facing camera. All right. Well, um, Heller calls this kind of information biometric psychography. So biometric psychography is a new concept for a novel type of bodily centered information that can reveal intimate details about a user's likes, dislikes, preferences and interests. Immersive technology must capture this data to function 
Oh, sorry, sorry. Immersive technology must capture this data to function, like your 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 Oculus glasses, your Google glasses, uh, your haptic suit, um, you know, a VR virtual reality gloves, right? So it's got to capture this data to function, meaning that while biometric psychography may be relevant beyond immersive tech, it will become increasingly inescapable as immersive tech spreads. Current thinking around biometrics is focused primarily on identity, but biometric psychography can identify a person's interests. Huh. So right now, current thinking around biometrics is focused primarily on identity, but biometric psychography can identify a person's interests. Okay, so, huh, interesting. Yeah, so it, there's so many different devices now that are, are capturing your biometric data, whether you, you know it or not. Like, for instance, your handshaking, you know, like uh, you're holding an iPad, iPhone. Maybe somebody might tweak some kind of software or the iPhone might tweak some settings in order to be able to adjust to maybe somebody who has Parkinson's, right? Um, I don't know. Anyway, that just kind of got me thinking. Anyway, so I'm going to continue with the article. It's not just about VR and AR technologies that give rise to biometric psychography. It's facial scans, EEGs, EMGs, ECGs, galvanic skin responses, and the like. I can see how useful this could be in the medical context and how it could be equally sinister in the consumer context. Yeah, like I was saying about the Parkinson's stuff, you know, about shaking your phone and stuff like that. Um, but then it could be equally sinister in the consumer context. I guess we'll find out why here. So what's powerful and alarming about the inferential power of biometric psychography is that your biological responses are almost entirely involuntarily, in, involuntary. So that's that's what's powerful and alarming about the inferential power of biometric psychography is that your biological responses are almost entirely involuntarily are almost entirely involuntary all right i'm going to highlight that because that's that's interesting and it's extraordinarily difficult to understand how it might be used ah oh, man it's making me sign into the highlighter all right i'll do that later and so <clears throat> um so i have no idea which signals Facial tracking algorithms pick up from my face to infer my feelings, let alone how they're processed. Especially if machine language is involved, I'm not sure any engineer creating the system could really tell me either. So that's what one interesting thing that I'm learning as I'm exploring these data science courses is there's um, AI and algorithms and machine learning coming in and there's neural networks and that's where you kind of get into fuzzy logic and, and that's where you get into to things that, that even the data scientists and the people that are configuring and programming all this stuff don't understand. Once you get in, once AI takes over and machine learning gets involved and, uh, the, neuro, and the, the data goes into the neural, net, neural networks, it becomes untraceable in a way. And we were just talking about tornado cash being untraceable, you know, and then the Fed's not liking that. Well, maybe the individual doesn't like it at some point that AI can take their information and then suddenly it becomes untraceable how AI came to that conclusion from somebody's personal information because it got involved in an, it got it dove into a neural network and humans aren't able to trace what the hell the machines did with that information in order to come out with their outcome. You know, I don't know, but it's just, it, it's a little creepy, you know, and there's, um, the California consumer protection act. And then there's the European 
is it European General Data Privacy Act or something like that um, that protects our data and that requires the the use of our data to be traced, right? You know, to protect the consumer. But whenever you start getting into AI and neural networks, that the the use of that data and how they're processing it and the algorithms become untraceable. So that becomes a little bit of a problem to comply with these regulations that that uh, government agencies have, have come up to try to protect the individual and in their, in their privacy. I don't know. So anyway, <clears throat> so yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll read this sentence again. I have no idea which signals facial tracking algorithms pick up from my face to infer my feelings, let alone how they're processed, especially if machine learning is involved. I'm not sure any engineer creating the system could tell me either, right? So that's where, the yeah, they're talking about neural networks, I believe. So commercial VR systems typically track body movements 90 times per second to display the scene appropriately, and high-end systems record 18 types of movement across the head and hands. Consequently, spending 20 minutes in a VR simulation leaves under 2 million unique recordings of body language. That's insane. So no wonder Facebook is interested in building the metaverse, given its data-hungry advertising first business model. The petabytes of information that will inevitably pour in from VR is a super rich source of data, making them super rich. <laughs> Seriously, man. Like, if you have 20 minutes in a VR simulation, and two million unique recordings of your body language are available. Imagine the people that would, that Facebook is trying to to get to spend all day in in the metaverse, you know, in their metaverse, the enclosed, capsulated metaverse that is proprietary, where they can collect and store all your data in a centralized server database. You know, interesting. So um, they combine. They could combine biometric data with other kinds of data on you, which makes the magnifying glass of inference even more powerful. Birth date plus gender plus zip code is a powerful combination. And then your listening history, your movie watching history is more valuable information than the sum of their parts. Access to mountains of your Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp plus VR activity is, of course, far better. <laughs> Many machine language researchers and data scientists will be excited to train the algorithms on or otherwise use this information to serve ads or build AGI, which is um, uh, artificial general intelligence. Um or do psychology research. Okay, there's different types of artificial intelligence. There's artificial intelligence that will, that's just like standard AI that will automate some kind of process and the computer will learn from that, maybe to be able to do something like retouch photos, yeah, and, and to fill in gaps and stuff like that. That's artificial intelligence. AGI is built, it's a different one. It's built in order to be able to create something that is, um, almost like a human mind and to be able to make decisions on its own and stuff like that. Um, that's a little bit more aligned with, with what we would consider, you know, our movie, you know, AI, you know, about some, you know, humanoid space robot going flying out into deep space with somebody who's been cryogenically frozen and he wakes up or she wakes up and is just like, you know, the AI's name is Alice and it's Alice. How long have I been asleep? You have been asleep for 326 years and stuff like that, you know, and this like becoming their best friend and stuff as they're, as they're, that's more of like AGI. AI is just used for application specific type of tools. That for, that's kind of what I'm understanding anyway. I've been reading some books on AI and that's kind of what, what I'm gathering. So anyway, <clears throat> 
So many machine learning researchers and data scientists will be excited to train algorithms on or otherwise use this information to serve ads or build AGI or do psychology research. I mean, of course, this is powerful stuff. And I know firsthand how amazing capabilities can be created from this information. But this demographic of people, the ones who take care of the inference side, need to think about whether or not how and why to use this kind of data? That's a good question. So not only can you get more knowledge by running existing inference methods on novel data, novel forms of data. So sorry. Not only can you get more knowledge by running existing inference methods on novel data, novel forms of data allow and call for novel forms of inference too. We figured out how to vectorize text into word embeddings. That's a representation of text that can capture semantic meaning and allow for new inference methods that rely on such methods. The raw data gets more expressive and our reasoning methods get newer and better and then rinse and repeat. So yeah, um, as, as newer models spit out better predictions from less data coming from more unintuitive sources, we have to think about what can be inf inferred. So what happens when you combine novel bits gathered from different corners of your life? What happens when you run your ever-improving reasoning processes through that ever-growing pile of bits? There are debates being hashed out over whether these predictive processes are good or scientific. Regardless, we know they're powerful. So one question is, who has a say or a stake in that power? Yeah, at some point, the, the little bits of data that can be used by AI in ways that we as humans are not even able to do, it becomes almost like a faith exercise, you know, like the AI came to a conclusion, like I was talking about earlier about the neural networks, and we don't know how it came to that conclusion. Like for instance, um, I can't remember the name of that AI that, that played the game of chess or also the game of Go there. Yeah. And Go is a, is another more complex version, um, similar game to chess, but yeah, anyway. Um, and we've been playing chess for, for, you know, a couple thousand years or so. And, you know, you would think that these chess masters would have all the strategies possible yet AI comes in there and goes through a bunch of scenarios and then it comes up with maneuvers and strategies that humans had never thought of. And we don't know how they came up with those. So we know they're true and that they and that because the machine won against the human, you know, the human chess masters, but we don't know how it got there. So we are basically under some kind of semblance of faith that that what that machine did is true. You know, but we don't know how it got there. We don't know all the technical details and the strategy and the thought process and the algorithm that, that got it there. So in a way, you know, faith and science are starting to blend together at this point. That is insane because, you know, there's always been this. You, you read theology books from like World War One and World War Two eras and stuff like that during the height of modernity and all that stuff. And it's always this 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 dual um, this this. Uh, this black or white between faith and science, you know, it's you either have faith or you believe in science in the scientific method. And right now we're in a, we're in an age where all that's starting to blend together because we don't know what AI is doing. And so we have to have faith that their outcome, which 
proves in a lot of cases like the chess game to be right and true and accurate. We just don't know how it got there. And so we have to have faith that it was running the correct type of algorithms. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, so... Um, so are, are our social and economic structures set up to handle this world trajectory is the question that she asks. When large neural networks can hoover up terabytes of text or biometric measurements generated by everyday people doing their everyday thing to create incredibly, incredibly powerful prediction machines, surely there are some rights and rewards that everyday people can expect from contributing their information. And by Hoover up, for those of you who, who you know didn't grow up in the United States, the Hoover is a vacuum. So you know, when large neural networks can vacuum up terabytes of text or biometric biometric measurements and data generated by everyday people doing their everyday thing to create incredibly powerful prediction machines, surely there are some rights and rewards that everyday people can expect from contributing their information. And this brings me, and I've said this before on the show too, it brings me back to like, to a, a vacation Bible school from, you know, like um, when you're in elementary or middle school in church, you know, and, and the, the little school teacher or in preschool, the school teacher is telling me, everybody's unique. Hey, you, you, everybody's special. God loves everybody. No matter who you are, good or bad, everybody has something to contribute to this world. And God loves you all. Well, in the way, in that way, yes, we all have data. We all are collecting data. No matter, it's not a matter of whether or not you're good or bad or, or you know, what, what you do with your life. You're collecting data. You're a data collector. So you have value. There is value in that. So <laughs> you know, it, it's, it, it's not even a question of good or evil. It's, it's the question of, of, of data collection. You know, you're a data collector. That's what we are as people. And that inherently gives us value. So, yeah, all right. Anyway, so. Yeah, so I'll read this sentence again. When large neural networks, these AI that we don't know how it's doing it, can hoover up terabytes of text or biometric measurements generated by everyday people doing their everyday thing to create an incredibly powerful prediction machines, surely there are some rights and rewards that everyday people can expect from contributing their information. As of now, Facebook and Google and Amazon, they've just been taking that and selling it and making themselves rich off of your information. And a lot of people can't get, the, they can't understand that. They're like, and then why we want privacy. You know, we want to protect our data. You know, we don't want other people getting rich at our expense while we don't, you know, while we're just stuck in slavery, right? So although many digital services are financially free, pe since people subsidize usage by paying in data, I wonder if this remains a sustainable model for the future. And I was listening to somebody on Econ Talk talking about like, Imagine if you had a washing machine that wasn't working in your house and uh, you called the washing machine repair person. They came out and uh, they, they fixed your washing machine and then they left. They said, well, you say, well, how much? And they say, well, that, that's no charge. And you're like, what? And they're like, well, it's no charge because I, you know, went around your house. I looked at your books. I, uh, you know, saw what type of clothes you were washing. Um, I, I looked at your, I mapped your house I, I, the way it, it was all laid out. And uh, yeah, I learned a whole lot about you. And so I'm going to take that data and I, I'm going to take that information and I'm going to sell it. So I'll make money off of that. And uh, you get your washer fixed for free as a result. So, yeah. So anyway, so much of the internet is, and you might be like, hey, wait a second. <laughs> Why don't I sell my data 
and I, I'll pay you to fix my washing machine, you know, like, and I'll keep that money for, for my information, you know? So, so much of the internet, so I'll continue with the article. Much of the internet is a collectively created commons with massive inferential leverage. So far, large platforms have mostly harnessed data by their own users to make services better. This will get more powerful as things like biometric psychography become possible. So the more our biometric data is being um, funneled into their systems, like, you know, how much our handshakes, you know, like like or where our eye movements are going, you know, our, our, our sweat amount, you know, um, as, as, as that stuff is tracked, you know, and that data is sold, you know, it'll get more powerful, you know. So, so anyway, so... I'll continue with the article, sorry. But we're also good at and getting better at collecting and using data we didn't help to create. The growing data market involves data brokers selling information collected in some contexts to parties for use in other contexts. Information across the internet is being harnessed by mostly private entities that make powerful and lucrative language models dependent on common data, but they aren't set up to pay the gains back. The data wasn't created contractually and not for this context. And in a way, this privatizes the commons. How can we improve the situation? People should be able to share in whatever economic and epistemic upside is created. And they have a say in it rather than have it leveraged on their behalf of other interests and or directly against theirs. And we need to better draw better lines around knowledge gathering, lines that delineate agency and control, lines that will safeguard identities and spaces, lines that people can trust in. And so, okay, I was I started this off and I, I talked about re-public DAO that I'm, um, I'm a part of and I follow and I go to their town halls every Friday. Um, so every Friday at uh, 1 Central, so that's 11 Pacific time, yeah. Um, is it one? Yeah, one central. No, no, no. Every Friday at noon central. So, so 10 Pacific time. Um, you can log in to the to town hall. Um, it's a Zoom call, but follow Republic Dow um, on uh, Twitter. It's Republic, re-public.io. And uh, Keith Axline is the founder of it. He's created a DAP that you can put on your phone. And, you know, a lot of the privacy Nazis and stuff like that, I mean, I, I love privacy, you know, but there's some people that get really radical about it and they're trying to go completely off the grid. At, we're at this point where I think it's gone too far. Like, we're not going to get away from everything. So it's kind of like Aikido, you know, that martial art, you have to take the momentum and the, the energy that an opponent is throwing at you and turn it around and use it and direct it back at the opponent or use it for your own flow and your own and your own good use it in a positive manner so that's kind of what i feel like he's doing right here with this dap is you can install on your phone and it, your your iphone and your android are already collecting your information anyway but what this does it also funnels it into this app and so what if there is a marketplace and republic is now um, got a grant from ocean protocol as well and so what if you can put your data up on the marketplace, you can sell your data, and then there's some kind of like dashboard that shows you who's buying your data. And, and then you get paid in whatever token or USDC or something like that for the use of that data. But then you can see who's plugging into your data. You know, say for instance, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know. 
I, I can't think of any controversial topics right now because I don't want to talk about controversial topics. But say you know, you're on one side of a political fence, and then some other, you know, say let's say abortion, for instance. You know, say say you're you're a, um, anti-abortion, and then some pro-abortion organization is tapping into your data to learn about you. You know, you might not want them to tap into your data, even though they're legitimately buying it, right? And so you can c- control your preferences and you can control who is buying your data. You can say, no, I don't want them to buy it. But either way, the data is in your control and you're getting paid for it. You know, So I thought that was pretty cool. Eric Mack, um, who's also a part of the Republic um, uh, DAO, and he's one of the founders of JournoDAO. He came up with a really interesting point too. He's like, what if, you know, uh, he's like, for a while people were using the GPS um, on iPhones to track the movements of troops in Afghanistan. You know, like they would be on base in Afghanistan and maybe they would all go play basketball somewhere, you know, at some point or they would be moving somewhere else. And, you know, other governments and other um, uh, you know, intelligence groups were tracking those those soldiers through their iPhone. So those, that's another example of, of a way you don't want your data tracked. And if you could have your data up on a public marketplace and you could turn on and off specific people that are allowed to track your data, um, and then the people that you do allow to track your data, you let them pay you for your data fairly, you know, so... Yeah, you know, it's, it seems to me all like kind of like a win-win situation. And I'm sorry, Keith, if I'm not explaining this in, in a totally uh, amazing way, but um, I'm trying to, to, to learn how to vocalize this. Like Ocean Data Marketplace, what that does, it allows people, organizations, companies to upload their data. Um, say, for instance, you have some huge .csv Excel spreadsheet. You know, for instance, I would have extrusion data um, at my uh, the hose plant that I work at. Um, I could take .csv spreadsheets and upload that to the Excel, uh, upload that CSV data to the Ocean Protocol data marketplace. Ocean Protocol would tokenize that data. And then somebody else could come in, say somebody else trying to learn, some other company trying to learn about extrusion. The name of my company would not be associated with that data. It would just be data. So some other company or organization could come in and buy that extrusion data. And then um, that money would go to my company, right? The company that I work for. And so that data would be sold and you know, it would be, you know, they could, they could either use it on that platform or you could make it to where they download it. They're able to download it to their machines. Those are options that are available, but that's how you can buy and sell on an, on a open source, you know, third party data marketplace that's on ocean protocol. And the identity of whoever is putting up that data is protected through what's called a DID, a decentralized ID. So nobody knows whose data that is. It's just data that's up there for sale and and it's being able to be bought and sold. So what if the consumers could do that? And what if the consumers could log into a dashboard that shows them exactly who, you know, is applying for access to their data? You know, say, say for instance, Facebook wants to use the data that's been gathered on my iPhone. Well, they would have to go in and say, hey, John, can we use your data? 
And I'd be like, ah, no, I don't like you. I don't want to let you use my data. So no, you can't, you know. <laughs> but what if, you know, say, for instance, I don't know, like um, some skateboard company wants to use my data from my iPhone from whenever I'm at the skate park, you know, and they want to create like a better skateboard, you know. So they and I, they, they want to track some, some of my information um, because I skate and all that stuff. And you know, they would have to apply through the Republic app or through whatever app is using and built on Republic. And they would have to say, hey, John, can we use your data? Uh, this is who we are. We are a skateboard research company. And I'd say, sure. You know? And then, I would, then suddenly I would start getting a stream of money come in from them using my data. It's kind of like, I guess, the general premise is it. Like, so it's not all about like, total privacy in a way, um, but it's more about control. It's about control of your data. It's about ownership of your data and getting paid for your data. You know, like the washing machine example, for instance, you know, like like that that washing machine repair person came in and repaired my washing machine and said, yeah, I repaired your washing machine. Yeah, I have no charge, no charge, but I'm making millions off of the way I mapped your house and looked at your clothes and books while I was there. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Um, anyway, so yeah, go to re-public.io. They're trying to create an app to help people get control of their 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 data um, and uh, um, building this platform. And so dApps can be built on top of this platform as well. And uh, yeah, man, um, there's a lot of really interesting conversation happening in the in the town hall there on Fridays, and you know a lot of really good ideas. And Keith is a really good developer, and uh, hopefully we we um, I mean I'm trying to to improve my development skills as well. Um, so maybe I can be up there coding with him at some point soon too. But um, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're all trying to work on this issue and the issue that has been outlined in uh, this article that I just read, you know, so uh, all this stuff is linked in the video description and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I've gone on 40 minutes and 52 seconds now, so I'm going to get off my soapbox and go, um, go do some exercise, probably go to the skate park. It's not even dawn yet. So it's 622 in the morning now. All right, man. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, hit me up. Give me a thumbs up um, on on the YouTube or whatever. Subscribe to my channel. It helps. Um, I'm so close to a thousand subscriptions. I, I think I might be able to get some kind of monetization at a thousand subscriptions, like what twenty bucks a month or something that YouTube would pay me. <laughs> I, don't I don't know, man. Uh, but whatever. I, I'm not a bean counter. I don't I don't sit around and obsess over statistics and stuff. But it does give me a little hit hit of a dopamine um, whenever. I do get the little like, you know, and that I get the attaboy, the pat on the back that I'm doing a good job because, you know, I may seem very confident, but I'm also, also need all the attaboys I can get, you know. So, all right, uh, I will talk to you guys whenever I talk to you. All right, later. Thank you for making it to the end of this program. If you actually like this content, give a thumbs up. And if you want to hear more, just hit the subscribe button. I'm available on YouTube, Odyssey, and BitChute, and on all the major podcasting platforms in audio version. Spotify specifically, if you would like to follow and leave a review, that would help a lot. I am also available on Twitter at EurekaJohn1. That's E-U-R-E-K-A John, J-O-H-N, and the number one. My DMs are always open. Feel free to shoot me a message. Thanks again.